one by one They're turning out the lights Jerry Lee Lewis <laughs> I must ask first of all other than why Jerry Lee Lewis did you get hypnotized by that music when you were a young person too oh yeah yeah I mean you know it's what it boils down to is is you know when I was a little you know I was you know Jerry Lee hit it hit it big in 57 you know in 58 was hitting it big I was born in 59 so I missed the genesis of that music but it was still burning up the radios you know Jerry Lee was still on the radio and 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 not just the the big rock and roll hits like Great Balls of Fire and a whole lot of shaking going on and those songs but there was also just a you know good bit of you know that great honky tonk mix of of kind of hillbilly and blues that you know that he was playing and and you would hear that and of course then by the time I was you know 10 or 11 or 12 he was on the radio every 5 minutes with a great you know mega hit country music song like things like what made Milwaukee famous is made a fool of me and and she still comes around to love what's left to me and the great one the one I loved was the one that kind of gave him his breakthrough it was a song called Another Place Another Time and it's beautiful music so on a biographical work like this by the end of it where you are now and I don't know how long ago you finished it but do you know more about Jerry Lee Lewis than you ever wanted oh, to? Oh, God, yeah. I, I don't know if I ever wanted to, but, like, for instance, you, you, you know, you know that he did a cover of Big Leg Woman that where he just tore it up. You know that he did blues and that just, you know, has this, this infusion of kind of honky-tonk, hillbilly. Uh, he doesn't like the word hillbilly, but this, this, this country marriage of country and blues that is you know kind of what honky tonks are about and you know if i could do anything i would i'd go back in time and walk in the front door of you know the wagon wheel bar outside natchez and hear all this music coming together you know in the the in the 50s as rock and roll was being born so yeah i i, I know a lot more about it now than i ever thought i would so how do you think jerry lee went over in Piedmont, Alabama. Oh, hugely. Because, you know, first of all, there's enough country in him to where he's one of them. He's he's one of us. But he's also, you know, got this infusion of blues and gospel and influences that you wouldn't even think about. You know, uh, Hoagie Carmichael, Stephen Foster, going back, you know, decades and decades and decades. So... You know, he's got Al Jolson in him. He's got Hank Williams in him. He's got Jimmy Rogers, who my people loved, in him. He went over real big with people that swung hammers for a living or, you know, worked in coal mines or, or worked in cotton mills. He went over real big with those people. Big and, with your parents? Yeah. Oh, yeah. My daddy, certainly. You know, my daddy, you know, loved to, loved to drink and spin that radio dial. <laughs> so, um... You know, Jerry Lee said something that, that stuck with me. You know, he, he 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 said, you know, the women, they all loved Elvis. They loved him, too. But the men, where I came from, they didn't quite get Elvis. There was a beauty in Elvis and a beauty, a, kind of a gentleness. 
in Elvis. And Jerry Lee was a you know, Jerry Lee was a swinging tire. You know, Jerry Lee was a oh man, Jerry Lee was was a you know broken bottle coming at you. You know, and 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 the men got that. You know, they got that. So Jerry Lee had the men and the women together. And, uh, yeah, hey, I think he went over real big in Piedmont. Possum Trot. Possum Trot. And <laughs> Welburn and Sachs and Weaver and and uh, Oxford and, uh, you know, Anniston and Talladega. I think he went over real big in those places. Are you still making it back up that way? Oh, God, yeah. I mean, I will until I die. Yeah, how often? Oh, a couple of weeks a month. You know, I try to spend a couple of weeks a month at home when I can. Well, you say you come from people who were fist fighters, brawlers, bad drinkers, and badly behaved. <laughs> well, that's all the bad things they were. Well, there were a lot of good things. In right? certain situations, right. right? Like they're going to react and do the wrong right. thing in certain situations. Given a chance between doing the right thing and the wrong thing, I think there's a pretty good chance we'll do the wrong thing. Still that? You think people no, are still that way? No. we. Most of us have gotten old and soft and harmless. Yeah? Oh, yeah. Is that a good thing? Well, it keeps us out of jail. Uh, now, the, you know, the, there's always a great gentleness and a strength in the women where I came from. And there were men, like I had some uncles who were the best men I know, you know, who helped raise me and took me to the doctor when I slid into home plate and peeled all the skin off my behind. You know, they they were you know very good men. My brother Sam is, is a very good man. But, yeah, I mean, you know, but there were also those people who, who would rather, you know, get in a good fist fight than eat chocolate pudding. <laughs> well, so you, you've always said that storytelling was a big deal in your family. Is this directly what taught you how to write? Did it translate smoothly, or did you pick up on more of the oral part of it and learn the craft of writing on your own, or was the writing also in your family? Well, I think the the writing wasn't there, if you think that. But, see, writing is kind of the manual labor of storytelling. You know, storytelling, if you sit and you, you know, you tell a story from start to finish, and you have people sitting on the edge of the couch wrapped, the way my uncles could tell a story, you know, they really could make you hear the chains rattling in the pocket of the deputy as he chased them down the alley. That's how good they were. And, you know, the, the women in my family could tell a story and make you see a funeral, make you hear the songs that were sung as someone was preached into the hereafter. Because, you know, my people believe that even a bad, bad sinner if you, you know, could be preached into the hereafter if you preached it strong enough. So, you know, I think that writing, the physical act of writing, pounding the keys, is the manual labor of storytelling. Yeah, the rhythms and the cadences of the story, timing, all that translated from those oral storytellers to the written word. I think it, yeah, directly, yeah. Well, you say that you can change the world with stories. People have the ability to do that. When did you know you must write? At what point in your life? I, I, I wish, I, yeah, I wish that there had been this wonderful epiphany. Right. I wish that there had been this moment where I knew that I could do it. Where I knew that stories had that power. I knew that they had the power to lift the burden of a day. That stories had the power to, whether they were talked or sung, had the power to make the burdens of that day somehow lighter. Which I think is one thing that, you know, Jerry Lee had the ability to do. But my first stories were, you know, they were about sports or about, they were small stories and they were, but they were so vitally important to people. 
you know, writing about life as people lived it. So I kind of gradually, you know, went through my writing life and, you know, telling stories, mostly in newspapers. I knew that I was doing something important, but I think it was years and years and years and years later, I was sent to Haiti, and I, I wrote a story that might have, in some mild way, uh, contributed to uh, a military invasion of that country, and and might have stopped the killing for just a little while. And I say might because I don't have the I don't have the vanity to go beyond that. But you know, if it, if it helped one person not get removed from this this life, then then I was very proud of that. But I think the first I guess the first time really that I understood the impact of of what a story could do was I was interviewing this woman in interviewing this woman in New Orleans and she had her son a toddler not a toddler but a, 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 like a kindergarten or first grade I can't remember and I should remember had been shot to death on the stoop of her housing project a stray bullet hit him and uh, and I was writing a story about violence inner city violence and I was talking to her, and I began my talk by apologizing because I figured she wanted to be anywhere else in the world but there talking to me about this awful thing. And she told me not to worry. She said, I never will forget. People forgets if it ain't written down. So if I ever had any doubts about that, that kind of blew it away. And was that when you were working with the Times? Yeah, I was working with the Times in New Orleans. I, I don't think I was living in New Orleans at that time. I think <clears> so, I and it took you a while, many years, and jobs to get to the Times. Mm -hmm. So when you were a young man and you started to use the craft as something you might do for the rest of your life or in the near future, mm -hmm. was it with the Aniston Star or what What, oh, what paper was it back. with exactly that, that, that you started actually getting paid to write? Well, you know, we're going back to the Conestoga wagon days. Sure. You know, we're going back to we're going back to the invention of the wheel. But uh, <laughs> my first job was, uh, yeah, I worked for my school paper, high school paper, the Selgate, which is Eagles spelled backwards. <laughs> And then I went to Jacksonville State for one year. I'm still technically a freshman. I worked for my college paper. And that turned into a job with the Jacksonville Alabama News. And I literally got a job at the Jacksonville News as a sports writer because the guy they offered it to first had a real good job at the Kentucky Fried Chicken and did not want to take a cut in pay. So that's how my illustrious journalism career began was because uh, a guy didn't want to give up his job at the KFC. And um, I, you know, worked there for a year, went to the Aniston Star, which, you know, a great, this was luck. I was 18, I think, at the Daily Home. I was 19 when I went to the Aniston Star. And the Aniston Star being, you know, you know, one of the very best small newspapers in the country. What did they mean to you as a young man? Everything. Because, A, luck. You know, what are the chances that the newspaper that you land at when you're still not yet even 20, what are the chances that it's one of the best that appreciates storytelling and good writing? So, I, you know, I worked there for a long time. I, you know, long time for me usually means about three or four years. Well, why did you think it was one of the best at that time? It had a reputation. It was an award-winning progressive paper that had an award-winning progressive reputation and had good people as editors, had good... They give you time, you know, which is the you know the hobgoblin of every writer. 
that gave you time to, to tell a good story, tell a long story, tell a feature. And, and they had editors, usually it wouldn't mess it up for you. Our sports department at that time was, I thought, fantastic. I mean, really fantastic. And I worked in the sports department for a few years, covered Bear Bryant, you know, covered racing at Talladega, covered a series of coaches at Auburn, you know. They were going through some coaching changes at that time. Had a ball, but it was hard work. I remember working all the time. And then went to the newsroom to try to see if I could do that other stuff. And uh, left sports, went there, did that a few years, and and got hired by the Birmingham News, which was the you know the the big dog in the state. Sure. And while you were at the Aniston Star, and once you made that transition to the Birmingham News, was it the work that you just mentioned and the stories that you were doing that sent you down the path even further, or what specifically about it kept you there? When I moved to you know that we called. If you left sports, you went to the newsroom. Right. You went to features, and, and we called it the newsroom. I went there, and I, I discovered very quickly writing stories about, like, for instance, a tornado that had flattened a shopping center uh, in, over the holidays, and, and writing about that destruction, writing about people in trouble. Like I did a story about the, the, the rural poor, the elderly, and how out way out in the country things like, Healthcare and, and, and nutrition are, are complicated because I live so far out. I remember Ken Elkins, the great black and white photographer, took some beautiful black and white photographs for that. I, I just began to understand that, and you know, I, and it's no big secret, I've grown up dirt poor myself, that writing about people in trouble, whether that be violence or poverty, writing about people in trouble just seemed to be the most important thing in the pages of the paper. Violence, military action or intervention, politics were all important, but, but to me, it was those people that were living cheek and jowl with poverty, with violence, with people that just had one foot in the grave already. Those were stories that I would kind of cleave to and would, that would follow me from, you know, Anniston to, to Birmingham and beyond to St. Pete and, and on. Well, and your mom and your, your siblings and people in your household and in town, when, when they read your articles or saw what you were doing, not did they approve, but did they support you in that endeavor? Was it ever? Yeah, they always supported me, but you kind of understand that there was not a, um, you know, my mom was proud of me, but they were proud of me when I wrote a, a high school football game. You know, they were proud of me no matter what what I wrote, they were just, they were proud that, you know, they saw my name in the paper, and they would say, do you see Ricky was in the paper today? And I hadn't done anything to get in the paper, I just wrote a story, you know, and, and yeah, I mean, my mama was always proud of that, my aunts were proud of me, my uncles were too, I think, but they also thought that it was kind of frivolous, because, you know, I mean, who gets to write for a living? You know, don't, to make a living, don't you need to, like, swing a hammer? You know, don't you need to, to, like, work at a loom? You know, don't you need to go and stand over a weaving machine? You know, don't you need to don't you need to, to work at the pipe shop? So there was something kind of frivolous about it that for years, you know, it always it seemed like maybe I was just kind of playing in the fields of the Lord. You know, I wasn't really doing real work. And because um, my people worked. Was there any resentment towards you for that? I don't think so. I never felt it, ever. And I've been, I'm still kind of waiting for it. I mean, there's a cousin or two, probably somewhere down the line, that bad-mouthed me behind my back, but not many. Most of my people were with me and for me. 
That's the truth. You know, they were with me and for me, and they were proud of me. I, I, I don't remember ever even thinking about anything like that. To be honest with you, man, I was just too busy. You know, this, we, this is not a craft for people that want a lot of time off. Well, did you get personal satisfaction from your byline or from people telling you that they had read you? Is that yeah, a factor I, I, in what drove you? Yeah, I, I think, you know, it wasn't so much. And people would say, you know, read what you wrote and liked it. Or they would be touched more. They'd say, I read what you wrote and it meant something to me. I can write something even now about home or family or my mother or or my grandma who has passed on, and, and I'll get a letter from people who, you know, just pour their heart out about it. But, yeah, I mean, you know, you would you would get this reaction, and you're very proud of that, that by. We call it a byline, but it's, you know, that those simple little short word, by. And I was, yeah, I was very proud of it. And, and I still am, you know, God help me. You know, there's still, I still love. It's not so much seeing the, the name, because the name has come to mean less and less. But to, to me... But but the story itself, you know, if you write a story that people care about, and to know that you have lifted the blues off someone, to steal a line from Jerry Lee Lewis, that you have lifted the blues off someone for a little while, that's not a bad thing to say that you did. And if you can lift the blues off someone for 300, 400, 500 pages, even better. Well, so were you one of the uh, people, or I guess kids growing up, that saw that profession or, or writing in general as something that uh, was alluring in some way? Were you the only one of that sort, or did you have friends with similar interests? You know, my I had a friend named Mike Ponder who got me involved in journalism by saying, you need to come and take journalism with me because we don't have to do nothing. <laughs> he, you know, Mike has passed on. He passed this year, but he, I never, as I stood over... The grave, I, st- I could just see him standing there beside me saying, you need to take journalism because we don't do nothing in there. And uh, that's you find that I, to be true? And I found <laughs> it to be the, the least true thing Mike ever said. <laughs> you know, this is not, like I said, this is not a craft for people that want a, t- a lot of time off. But, you know, no, there were not a lot of people in my immediate vicinity. My, my people work with their hands. You know, they, they work with their hands. And they still do. And, and, and that is still kind of seen as real work. And even now, knowing that I've, you know, that they've seen me work 18 hour days, you know, for six months, a year on end, they've seen me come back from places where, uh, you know, people were throwing rocks at me or chanting death to the infidel. They know I've covered, you know, the Pakistan Afghanistan border, and they know I've covered Haiti in times of great strife. And they know I've covered the inner cities of this country where, you know, people would kill you for your shoes, and they they know all that. But it still ain't the same as real work. It's not the same as pulling a transmission. So I guess I'll die, and people will say, that, you know, standing over my funeral, they'll probably say, you know, he, he never did really hold down a job. They look at it like Mr. Ponder did, I guess. Right, yeah. he never really... He didn't do nothing. Right. Well, when you go from... Anderson started Birmingham. Mm-hmm. It seems silly to say, but that's a culture shock in a lot of ways to go from even Anniston to Birmingham. Oh, it was definitely it was culture shock. I mean, I you know the other you know it one that I ain't never been to Birmingham. I mean, you know, we went to sure. Birmingham to like on anniversaries or or if you really got real sick, you got to go to to Birmingham. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, I, you know, the first time I I pulled into you know downtown Birmingham ain't hard to find your way around in. Right. But I still managed to get lost. 
so I kind of, when I moved to Birmingham, I kind of tried to turn it into a small town. I ate at the same place all the time. You know, I probably ate enough fried chicken at Fryer Tucks down on 20th Street. I think it's 20th Street to kill a normal human being. Me and my friend Greg Garrison would go, you know, at 10.59, we would, I mean, before it had even hit 11, we were up and out the door and, and going to, you know, because Birmingham has has had and still has great food. And, you know, and, and Milo's. I must have eaten a million Milo burgers. Birmingham, you're doing the same kind of stories you same, were in Same kind of stories. I, I, I was a general assignment reporter. I immediately began doing stories about people in trouble, about, you know, wrongly accused. Uh, if it was grim, I did it. Me and a, a great reporter named Mike Oliver and I did a, a series of stories on abuse and neglect cases in the state. You know, a really good reporter named Dean Barber and I did a series of stories on coal mines and the, the, the slow, what we thought, what appeared to be the slow death of the coal industry in Alabama. And we wrote about, you know, we went underground and, and wrote about, you know, the laid off miners and, and you know, just kind of kept going from there. I, I just didn't see much value in writing about things that were not serious and, and, and dark and gloomy. Now, I tried to write a funny story every now and then, but, but at that time, I was at a period in my life where I thought the most important stories had, had to do with life and death. And sometimes life and death is whether or not you get a paycheck or not. Were you a serious person at that time? Oh, God, no. And I don't think you might think I was. I was a whistle breeches from the word go. I was, uh, I was, uh, and, you know, no. I, it wasn't like I was one of those dark and gloomy guys who, who couldn't go out and enjoy, you know, a, a plate of ribs because he was worried about man's inhumanity to man. That wasn't it. I was a storyteller, and I thought the best use of my talents as a storyteller was to tell stories about people in trouble. But, no, I, I've had a good old time in this world. Well, how did the Harvard Fellowship come about? Well, I was at St. Pete. I'd left, uh, I'd, I'd left uh, the Birmingham News and gone to the St. Pete Times. Right. And I was actually the Miami Bureau Chief for them. And I was, again, continuing to write stories. I'd been to Haiti and written about death and dying there. I, I'd written about political strife there in South Florida. I'd, I'd written a lot of the kind of long magazine-style pieces. And, uh, you know, I never had finished school. Technically, I'm still a freshman at Jacksonville State University. So I, I never had finished school. So I, I, a friend of mine said, you need to apply for a fellowship and, and you know, maybe get a little academic jelly on you. And um, the only one I applied for, there were a bunch of fellowships out there, but I wanted to go to Harvard. I'd gone to, at the uh, Anderson Star, I'd worked with these kids, some of them who'd gone to Harvard. They were brilliant, you know, smart guys. And, and I just thought that it would be fun. And, and it's almost, a, you know, too good to be true. You get, a, you know, basically a year off to go study at Harvard. And they pay all your tuition. And you get a stipend. And your newspaper continued to pay your salary. So I, I thought to myself, that sounds like a deal I'd like to be in on. So I, I applied for it, wrote an essay where I talked about why I wanted to go. You know, I, I wanted to go and learn some of the history that I had been just winging it, winging it on, you know. And so I, I, I wanted to study history. I wanted to study American history, women's history, Afro-Caribbean history, Latin American history. I wanted to, to write about a, a social history of the United States since World War II. 
I wanted to know some things. I wanted to hear smart people talk about things I needed to know more about, is the way I worded it. And they judged that essay, and they also judged your career. You you really kind of won the Neiman, you know, like an award. Mm -hmm. And I got lucky and won it and uh, spent a year studying history and being cold. So in 1994, you joined the New York Times, right? Yeah, 94, joined the Times. So now, what is your chief memory of the New York Times? I think it's going to places. Going to places. Yeah, we won the Pulitzer while I was there. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I think it's going to places. I think it's going to, you know, I went to a place in Pakistan called, after 9-11, called the Bazaar of the Storytellers. And, you know, going to, to Haiti, back to Haiti, during some awful killing there. Doing what I kind of did all my life, you know, just writing stories about people in trouble. You know, I'm very proud we won the Pulitzer, but mostly my, my fondest memories tend to be of going to places and trying to make sense of a thing. There was this great adventure in going to a place and trying to make sense of something, and then trying to share it, but also to write it pretty. You know, even, even the ugliest things, trying to write the ugliest things pretty. And it's still what I try to teach now. How do you write pretty about ugly things? Right. And, uh, but I think that was it. I did get make a trip to, they sent me on a eating tour of North Carolina barbecue, you know, and they sent me on a trip to uh, Las Vegas to write about the vanishing Las Vegas showgirl. That was tough duty. But mostly it was just going, you know, going on somebody else's nickel and seeing, seeing parts of the world. Gene Roberts, the editor there, and I took a trip to Africa. So it was, uh, yeah, they, you know, I got to see the world because of them. It's a totally positive experience for you. Oh there. God, yeah. There is nothing that I would. There is nothing that I can say that would. That there is nothing that I can say about the chances. I'm. I'm I, I think that that. That there are times where you get to, there are times, very, there are a few times in this life where you get to take a satchel and, you know, put a week's worth of clothes in it and then go stay somewhere for almost four months. You know, there are, there are a few times in this life where you get to go and, like, you know, try to point a satellite phone at the moon to try to get a signal so you can tell your mama that, you, you know, what you saw that day or what you did. But I got to do that before the Times. I got to do that with the St. Pete Times. And in some ways, Birmingham. I mean, they never sent me very far. But, you know, we covered the state. And and, uh, and I got to know my state really well. So I think the thing that I love most about being a reporter was getting to go. You know, getting to go. Because I wasn't going to... The life I grew up in and the way I lived, I wasn't going to go to Africa unless I... You know, I went with someone like Mr. Roberts. You know, uh, I wasn't going to see the Middle East or Central Asia. The St. Pete Times let me go to the Middle East. I went to Saudi Arabia. I promised to kiss a camel if they'd let me go. You know, so, so I, you know, a lot of Southern boys, if they're going to see the rest of the world, they have to enlist. I didn't have to do that. So you chose to leave. Oh, God, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Do you regret doing that? Well, I walked out of there with... Three book contracts, essentially. Right. And it's not an old man's game. Right. If you want to be an editor, I think it's an old man's game. But if you, but I walked out of there with three book contracts. We'd already had two bestsellers. 
to New York Times bestseller. So my book life was, I, you know, you never want to say fixed, but but my book life was pretty well entrenched at that time, and and thank God continues. You know, people still want to give me money to write a book every now and then. But yeah, I I, I was lucky, and I. I also knew that I was probably going to... I had talked to some people about teaching, and I would also talked to some people about magazine work. And oddly enough, I wound up doing all three. Well, you mentioned the Pulitzer Prize that you won. 96, 96 right? yeah. For your, quote, elegantly written stories about contemporary America, is the way they put it. That was really sweet. <laughs> that was a nice way to say it. Well, where do you go from there once you win a Pulitzer Prize? What does that do to your ego and hunger well I, I think you you know I think it I think people make a lot more of that than than I think they should now don't get me wrong I was I was honored and I was thrilled to get it but but uh, this is really is a what have you done lately when I talk about that I'm talking more about daily journalism it's a it's a what have you done for me lately business on to the so, next thing yeah on to the next thing and oh it was it meant the world to me you know it made my people very proud but I kind of knew at that point that I was going to try to be a book guy. I was going to try to make my living writing books. And again, in that, I was I was very lucky. Doing the book on, on my mom, people ask me, what's the most important thing you ever wrote? Well, that, it would be that, hands down. So, you know, keep doing it. You know, the book on my grandfather, Charlie Bundram, you know, was made whiskey for 30 years and never got caught. I had known him, so I built me a grandfather in that book. And it, and it just kind of kept going. I kind of got to do the, the kind of books I wanted to do. And I did some because they were just good stories, great stories at the time, like the Jesse Lynch book. That was, was kind of like the story coming out of the war. And, you know, getting to do that and, and, you know, people pay you for that stuff. And Is that why you decide to do it? Is that when you decide, I must write a book? Is it because... It, I get paid paid well to do it, or I must do it. I think it's both. I think you do books for for lots of reasons. If you're lucky, you get to do them because you want to. You know, if you're lucky, you get to do them because you want to, and because someone wants it. Because wanting to do a book and getting to do a book are two different things. And getting to do a book that people will will make commercially viable is really rare. So I was really lucky. I did three books on family that were commercially successful. You know, the, the Jesse Lynch book I did because I thought, that's a hell of a story. You know, that's a hell of a story. And they paid me for it. You know, so that was a marriage of those two reasons. Writers who tell you that, you know, that they, they'll talk about, you know, I'm doing this serious project now on this or this or that. But I guarantee you there wouldn't be that many serious projects that people did for free. And so why do you think people would, would have wanted to hear stories or read books about your family and your childhood? Well, we're still a little puzzled about that, that you could write about poor people in the foothills of the Appalachians and get on the bestseller list. So I think it's because those stories mirrored the lives of so many people, not just Southerners, not just Southerners, but, you know, working people everywhere. You know, people who pulled in nets in the Pacific Northwest see their people in in those books about these people of Alabama. And, you know, all over the country, people walk up to me and say, you stole my story. You stole my story. And they just meant something. I think they meant something because, you know, they were real. You know, they were not inventions. You know, they were real. 
you know, people remembered them. And if they didn't remember them, they remembered somebody in their own family or their own town just like them. And that, that town might have been in Australia or it might have been in, it might have been in a tenement in New York. But that story of struggle, of sacrifice, of a mama who gives up everything so that her child can have a chance to kind of climb up her backbone and get out of a place only to see great value in it and write about it. You know, I still write about home every day. Not every day, but every week I write something about home. So, um, yeah, you know, I think that's why. At one point you mentioned that you were jaded by writing about killing and dying. And then that's when you start to reach back into your past, finding your family. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, it seems like something easy to do because it's so close to you, but at, at any time did it, get challenging and hard to hear things about your family you didn't expect? That's a good question. You know, it's funny. It, 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 it's not, I guess it's not so much jaded as I just was so, so tired of, I've just been doing it so long. And, you know, and the thing is, you, you know, it's, it's serious. You know, you, it's not something that you can mail in, you know. And yeah, when I went back and I started focusing on those books on, on family, yeah, I mean, I was greatly surprised at how difficult it could be sometimes. But at the other end of that were these sweet people like my aunts and uncles who just wanted to tell these great stories. And all I had to do was sit there with a big old legal pad, you know, and write it down. And and, and interviewing my aunts and uncles and, you know, people, friends in town and the enemies and, and uh, you know, people who thought highly of my family and people didn't think highly of them at all. Doing all that was still remains my favorite reporting. The Saban interview. Yeah. Oh, gosh, yeah. And the Sports Illustrated story. Yeah. You've recently gone in-depth about the process of reporting and writing that feature with a recent interview with uh, Sports Illustrated, yeah. which is a great Q&A. People should check it out. But I always go back to that quote, I've interviewed suspected serial killers. I've interviewed suspected terrorists. I've interviewed people who went to prison for killing men. I've interviewed a bunch of scary people. But Saban made me nervous. So you had 30 minutes with him. Right. You were prepared. Right. You were experienced. Right. Any Alabama fan would get nervous around him in person. Right. Did you let your personal fandom upend your objectivity in that moment, or was it just something about Saban specifically? I think it was more about Saban specifically, because again, I'm not, you know, this ain't my first goat roping. Right. You know, and I have interviewed some bad dudes. But. I had just come home to Alabama. I had, you know, had just come to work here, which we were very specific about pointing out at the end of that story that I did work here. And this guy's been greeted as Pharaoh, as Caesar, and I've got to interview him. And, you know, it's supposed to be 30 minutes, wound up being a lot more than that, you know. But but I'm sitting there across from him, and, you know, he's, a, he's an intense man. And he had just, seemed like he had just chewed up and spit out you know, a handful of sports writers just, you know, just a few days before. And, you know, and I, you know, I'm sitting there and, I, and, and, and he looks at you and, and I could just imagine being like a 19-year-old kid doing something wrong and then having to face him like that. But, yeah, he's a very, he, you, know, he, you know, I don't think he even thinks about it. I think you know, he's just a very intense. I'm sure he's thought about it because people have asked him to think about it. He's, just, you know, he's a very intense guy, and he, he, he was serious about his craft, like we all are. And he 
seem to have very little patience for stupid questions. Well, when, when you know that someone has no patience for a stupid question, then in the back of your mind you're thinking, I'm about to ask a stupid question. So yeah, I, I, you know, I wish it were not the case. I, I, you know, I, I wish I had like, you know, marched in there with grim purpose. But instead, yeah, I got a little bit nervous. You know, I, I, it made me feel a little bit more like a rookie than I was. Was that a good thing? Did it reassure you that you hadn't really seen it or experienced it all? Yeah, oh gosh, yeah. I mean, you know, because you know, it, it made writing it more fun. Yeah. Because you know, I went in. You know, you know, he was so. Everyone in sports information, they were very kind to me, but they, you know, they were adamant. You know, he'll give you thirty minutes. You know, that kind of thing. And right. Didn't matter that it was Sports Illustrated. It didn't matter. It'd give you thirty minutes, and you know, and I, and I, I you know, you know, I'm used to if someone usually anybody else had said that, I would have said, well, you know, let's not do it. Yeah, you know, let's just not do it. But it was a story not just about Saban, but it was a story about what his entry into Alabama football culture would mean. Would it take us back to the glory of the Rose Bowl trains and the bear, the, you know, the glory years of the bear? Would it do all that? So I had more going for me than just that interview with Saban. But he actually said, you know, we, you know, he actually, I think he smiled at me once, which threw me completely off guard, and then I was no good after that. Well, you challenge or really force your students to tell stories of poverty, or at least in my experience, when most of the time students have never seen a glimpse of it. Oh, sure. And, we do that. Yeah, and you say the best writing is about people in trouble. And you mentioned this earlier, people who suffer to live. What got you interested in people who survive hard times and live to tell about it? And what keeps you in that territory? Right. Well, it's just, it's real simple. I, you know, my mama really did drag me on the back of a cotton sack. Right. That's not a cliche. It's not something that's, that's, that's colorful to say. She took in laundry and ironing to make a living so that I could have school clothes. She, she flipped hamburgers in a truck stop and she worked on the floors of other people's houses, and she took care of other people's children so that, you know, we would have a little bit more. So, living with that for the first 15, 16, 17 years of my life taught me one thing, which is, you know, that, that if you're willing to bend lower and lift higher than most people are willing to do, then there is a heroism in that. And... Sometimes people are poor because they didn't try as hard as people who are not. Sometimes people are poor because they were born onto this treadmill of hopelessness. Sometimes people are poor because their jobs moved to Malaysia or China. Sometimes people are poor because of no reason other than just some bad luck. And I will always see that as a story worth telling. And... I wanted my students to do it because, you know, if you don't stretch, then you probably don't learn. So this story makes them stretch. It makes them go out and talk to people that, you're right, many of them, now some of them are from that world, but most of them are not. Most of them are from uh, the most comfortable of beginnings and the most important stories. And there's also another reason for doing it. It's not just that they're important. These are the stories that good news operations are going to want, and these are stories that will help build a career. So in a mercenary way, they're more important than a fluff story. So I would want them to try hard on a hard story and defeat it, beat it, do a good job on it, 
and maybe save the world in fraction of an inch themselves. We've been doing it a long time. It's been written about and talked about. They have like I think they had a journalism conference on it. So it's it's obviously it's 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 not too bad an idea. Well, so you came from where you came from. It's it's outlined in your books that yeah. you've written. You grew up hard. Your family went through hard times. As a professional writer, you've had tremendous success and been in a different position than your family did when they were working. And they achieved success in many different ways. But in the eyes of people career-wise, do you ever reflect on the success that you've had relative to how you grew up and the different kind of success that you saw or you perceived? Well, you try. Yeah, I mean, you know, you sometimes you... The secret, of course... To all this, the answer maybe is that you know you're never really very far away from home. You know, I go home all the time, and you know, I my conversations with people at home are, you know, why you can't get, you know, that piece to fit on that lawnmower. You know, how come the 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 Ford Bronco, the gas gauge still doesn't work after like 17 years? You know, the conversations are about work. They're about how many pints of pepper my mama put up. But now I got real, real lucky. I love to read. And that started me on a path to a certain amount of success in, in my writing life. You know, you try to, you know, I'm not wealthy enough to where I can, like, go and, like, you know, you know, have a civic center named after me. But I am wealthy enough to try to help take care of my people. You know, pay some bills, you know, put my mom in a good house where she's got trees to look at and, you know, donkeys grazing down on the hill and that kind of thing. You try to try to do good things for your people. But, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think about it a lot of days. You know, I, I, yeah, I, I think about like going and getting in my car and being pretty sure it's going to start. You know, little things like that are, are not knowing exactly how much money you have in your pocket. You know, for years and years and years, you know, I knew exactly how much money I had in my pocket. Now I'm always surprised if I find an extra 10 or a 5 or, heaven forbid, a 20, you know, in there. It's, it's, it's little bitty things like that, I think, that people will understand. But, yeah, I, I just think I got, I, I think I was lucky. I, I worked hard for a while. Sometimes I didn't work hard at all and still got away with it. There's no better place in the world to be from than here. I like my people. Sometimes we make bad decisions and we do stupid things and we sometimes we it seems like we hurl ourselves back in time when we should be coming forward in time. But you know, more than anything, you know, I I was driving down my mom's driveway the other day and there's a, a three deer, you know, across the driveway. Where in the world would I rather be, you know, than here? You're a big food guy. Yeah. You love food. You write yeah. about it all the time. Yeah. What's the perfect meal today? Hmm. Uh, you know, I, I think the, the, the perfect meal is um, fried chicken, mashed potatoes and gravy, real mashed potatoes, real gravy, green beans, coleslaw, cornbread with uh, jalapenos in it. That's kind of hard to beat. Um, second would be... What we'll have at Thanksgiving. I can take or leave turkey. You know, turkey's 
good. My mama makes great turkey, but but uh, we will have pinto beans with ham, and not just a skinny little shriveled up ham hock, but it'll have ham, big chunks of of ham in it with dressing, mashed potatoes, coleslaw, biscuits, cranberry sauce. There will be somebody will make macaroni and cheese. There may not be one green vegetable on that whole table, but that's hard to be. We'll have that here in just a little bit. Rick, thank you so much. Appreciate you, man. I've heard you whisper, we'd meet again Another place, another time Chairs are stacked all over tables And it's closed